For a long time now, I thought I was just a survivor, but I'm not. I'm the winner. That's who I am. The Time Lord Victorious. Hello and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Bryn. And I'm John. Thank you both very much for joining me. Now that the dust has settled on the epic multimedia event Time Lord Victorious, I thought it would be good to have a discussion about what we thought of it. Um, you've both been blogging about this series. Um, have you found that experience? Yeah, I really f- enjoyed doing the blog. I think it motivated me to actually consume all the different parts of it that I might usually have ignored. For example, I don't tend to read a lot of Doctor Who comics, so this kind of pushed me into an area of the Doctor Who expanded universe I don't really explore normally, and that was a really nice part of this. So I kind of had a similar thing where the fact that I was kind of doing it as a, a kind of brief for the um, Times of Time fanzine meant that I kind of had a really good incentive to kind of keep getting those bits done, keep reading all the different bits, try out things I might not normally do, like the T-shirt and the figurines. And yeah, just experience this kind of bigger context of stuff that they put out. So I didn't get any of the T-shirts, but were they like the figures? Did they come with a short story or any additional content like that? Uh, I only got one of the t-shirts, which was the, the fabulous Brian, the Ood one. No, no, no extra content or whatever. It is, it is just a t-shirt, but since they made such a fuss about that one particular t-shirt, <laughs> I thought I'd see if it was worth all the all the hype they were giving it. And to be honest, it, it for a t-shirt, it was about as good as it's going to get. <laughs> and have you worn it outside anywhere yet where you've been able to show off the glow in the dark? No, well, it's too light out, isn't it? I'd have to be out by till 2am at the moment for anyone to get any use yeah. out of that. I was thinking <laughs> it would look good in a nightclub, but that's not really an option at the moment either. <laughs> no, um, eventually, eventually, but we did test it out. It did work, so hopefully we'll get to see it in a proper context <laughs> later on in the year. You just sort of imagine somebody walking down the street and seeing this glowing, like, ood face coming towards them uh, out of the dark. <laughs> Oh, oh, you should you should imagine seeing the actual Brian that would coming at you out of the darkness. But um, I might talk about that a bit later when we get on to some of the live events. Oh wow, yeah, it's a time fracture, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes, just went on Friday, so I'm buzzing about it. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, I mean, that might answer the next question for you a little bit, John. But yeah, I just thought we'd talk about our highlights of of Time Lord Victorious. What what we each enjoyed the most. Yeah. So yeah, time fracture absolutely the best the best thing. Even though it might be the thing that's kind of only tangentially linked to the actual event, really love that. Um, Daleks also a highlight for me. I know that like it's not the like it's just fun. It's just a bit of fun, free kind of yeah. I just really enjoy Daleks, and I hope they do some more of that. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, and, that, and that's something that can be sort of untethered from the rest of Time Lord Victorious, can't it? You could just just follow those Dalek characters. Um, yeah, I'd love to see more of that as well. Yeah. For me, when I started to think about my highlights, I did sort of notice that there was a bit of a, a leaning towards one certain medium, which obviously kind of shows my own preferences, but I did really enjoy a lot of the big finished stuff, and um, particularly, actually, the stuff outside of that main trilogy they did. So I really liked um, Echoes of Extinction and... Um, Sorry, I've just forgotten the name of the fourth Doctor one. It's oh, genetics. genetics. Thank you. And genetics of the Daleks. Um, but 
also outside of that, but I think one of the what ended up being a highlight that really surprised me, and I wasn't expecting much going into, it, was um, Minds of Magnox as well, because I don't normally listen to audiobooks of you, you know I prefer either to read something or to have it as a form audio drama. But I really ended up enjoying that. Um, I think just it's such a nice reading, and kind of it felt like it explored some of the things I was kind of a little bit annoyed about other bits of TLV being a bit light on. So yeah. I thought for me the the cliffhanger to the night the fool and the dead was just awesome. Um, that was one of the uh, the most kind of exciting pieces of Doctor Who ever. Um, I thought it was brilliant. Um, like you say, I love Brian the Ude and the Dalek strategist. I thought they were two fantastic creations to come out of it, which you know hopefully have life beyond this as well. Um, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, they they they, they were they were brilliant. And then I think the other thing was just spotting the links between the different stories um even just kind of going over a few bits before we recorded today there was uh, i was reading defender of the daleks and there's a bit in that where the 10th doctor saves the dalek strategist and he says something like you know you know that there's later models now that can fly and then in the the enemy of my enemy the big finish play the, the we do see the dalek strategist fly it's that really cool scene where the eighth doctor kind of holds onto the back of him and they, and they fly out of that building and i thought is that a little <laughs> link where did he take the doctor's advice there and get fitted with the um the repulsor or whatever to, to be able to fly um and there's loads of nice little bits like that and even there's a little musical sting which i only spotted again because listening re-listening to the the sort of the eighth doctor trilogy after echoes of extinction and there's this little musical kind of riff whenever there's something a bit time lord victoriousy um, that, that just that just plays in, and I thought that was a nice little bit of um, continuity and, and linking between them as well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that thing about the sort of satisfaction from spotting connections. And I do think it's really interesting how that kind of plays out depending on what order you read stuff in, and certain stuff kind of will pick up more. And for, for me, one of the things I thought of as a highlight is actually I really like in All Flesh is Grass, um, Hector, the spider plan that the Doctor has. I mean, I remember just because I happened to not get round to reading the last issue of Monsters Beauty until after I'd already read that book, when I did read that, and there's the bit at the end where the Ninth Doctor brings Hector Jr. Um, <laughs> for Rose. I really enjoyed that moment. I was like, that, that felt like a satisfying connection um, to a part of the book I'd really engaged with. Yeah, and and that, even that scene where it's from Rosie's point of view, isn't it? And and she sort of closes her eyes and when she opens them again, the doctor's there and he's all sort of battered and like his his clothes are all scuffed and he's he's gone off and had the adventure of all flesh is grass while she's been asleep. Um, so yeah, that's and and that's one of the ones that's really successful, I think, in a standalone story. That if you weren't aware of the other media, so if you just watched, if you just bought Doctor Who magazine every month, you read that story as oh, I've got a ninth Doctor story again. Um, but if if you're aware of all the other bits and pieces, it, it all fits in really nicely, and we see more of the the vampires as well. I mean, on the one hand, I think that's a real strength of Time Lord Victorious is the standalone nature of a lot of the bits that can be joined together if you want. But at the same time, I think it might also be something that. I'd kind of want greater serialization in the future because it sometimes means that certain bits not just feel separate, but they also feel a bit throwaway. Like, I don't mean to you know diminish anyone's work when I say that, but just like some bits you feel like, oh, okay, was that put out just for the sake of putting something out rather than because it was part that needed to be in the saga? 
Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting kind of almost contradiction in the kind of idea that came up with where they were really keen to do this big connected multimedia thing. And then at the same time, we're constantly trying to stress that actually, you know, you can do all these bits separately. And obviously that is for a marketing reason that they don't want to be trying to, you know, say, oh, you have to buy everything because then people would be like, well, if I can't buy everything, I won't buy anything. And yeah, it does kind of mean that the result is a little bit, difficult at times with that yeah i think it's the books really isn't it we we last podcasted about the second book brin with with jason mm. who that was his first introduction to time lord victorious um it was coming which is like kind of really the second half of the the main bulk of the story um so that was wasn't like an obviously an ideal point to come in um, nah. But yeah, even the way I think we said at the time, the way the two books even didn't seem to quite marry up with each other. The way at the end of the first book, The Night, the Fool and the Dead, the Doctor seems to know exactly what he's doing and he's making these decisions and he's like, no, we're going to destroy the Keturah. And then the second book starts and he's like, oh, hang on, I've been a bit railroaded into this. Um, you know, I'm not really uh, not really sure about it. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a slightly inconsistent characterization. I do wonder how much of that is down to, I, am, I think that, presumably both of these two books were being written kind of at the same time mm. given how close to each other they're released and you know how in relation to the time frame from when we know that james goss was first sort of given the idea of doing time world victoria so you can kind of see how that then becomes a bit of a challenge in terms of coordinating things and i certainly think you know i do feel um like james goss can have a, a well needed rest now that this is yeah. all over because <laughs> he's certainly had a, a big job this year um things like that you can always you have to kind of squint a bit don't you it's like all good doctor who continuity it never quite fits together into a massive jigsaw unless you sort of step on some of the pieces but that's part of the fun <laughs> yeah i feel like it's almost like it's made up of a lot of really good ideas and characters um but maybe just doesn't quite hang together as a whole um because the idea of the Keturah, i think is a really great idea as well that this that there is a species that travel around and they determine lifespans and things. It's a big kind of epic idea. But then the the fact that they, they're they wiped out, it wasn't really, for me, satisfactorily resolved because, um, one, because the Tenth Doctor having wiped them out never really feels any guilt or faces any consequences of, of really for it. And then, you know, in, in Minds of Magnus, ends up destroying, like, or being responsible for the destruction of yet another planet. Um, and more people, and, and doesn't really walk away from it with any, seem to have really um, paid for any of that sort of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, the fact that it just it just seems like, well, after that, it just everyone just has a lifespan anyway. So the Keturah <laughs> weren't really doing um, much. So, there's, yeah, there's just those sort of odd bits. And I suppose the way that the timelines changed, but they, they only seemed to change for planets that we'd never previously heard of in Doctor Who. Um, so there was no consequences. I mean, as, as there couldn't be for sort of spin-off media, really, that's not really going to affect the main series um, for any of the main races that, that, that reoccur throughout Doctor Who or anything like that. The one thing I wondered about in that context, though, was the master, the Delgado master regenerating at the end of Master Thief. Well, or whatever it was that was happening. I wasn't even well, convinced it was a proper regeneration. Mm. There's a really interesting thread, and I have to assume that's one they're hoping to pick up on at a later date, because that was a really exciting place to end that story with what's happening, where's he going, what's... I, I was kind of expecting it to be picked up on maybe somewhere else in TLV, um, or 
or even in the second part. Of course, then I listened to the second part and it was completely, <laughs> completely yeah. different. But that was a really interesting thread and I hope they pick it up because what's happening to him? Where's he going? Because they actually <laughs> yeah, I'm, say, I'm, yeah, I'm, it's not regeneration, I, don't they? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I'm still not uh, completely sure what's happening there. I mean, it, it, that's probably the story that the most feels like, okay, so what is the time of Victoria's connection? I, I know that there is the the fact that the weapon that the master is using is like the miniature version of the thing that's in the enemy of my enemy. Yeah. But it's kind of beyond that connection. I've never quite been sure how that fits into Time Lord Victoria's narrative in, but it's kind of, it's not happening. I think that that is literally the connection. I think it is just that, 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 that device, but it does provide a cracking good story. It yeah, does, it's yeah. a good story. It's one I, one of the ones I enjoyed, and I remember talking about it in my review very positively. But then also sort of be like, oh, I wonder where this will lead, and kind of it being now more than half a year, and kind of not having, you know, it does make me wonder what the idea was there. But yeah, yeah. So I confused myself. Then because yeah, it's not regeneration because they specifically say uh, regeneration wouldn't help. So I kind of took it to mean that it was the master whatever change he underwent to become the skeletal master from the deadly assassin it was something something akin to um when the the master becomes the sort of the gelatinous snake in the tv movie that he's got some trick up his sleeve to uh, to escape death or something um yeah, so yeah, yeah i expected the master to turn up again and his whole quest was to get this map to the the boneyards of kith or something like that which <coughs> i expected either that to crop up again or the master to crop up again but also he only regenerated or whatever happened to him to that incarnation it seems like the end of that that incarnation in some way anyway um but that only happened because the 10th doctor changed the timelines because i think rax which was the planet where the the weapon came from the d evolution weapon came from only existed because that's why they went there to investigate the 8th doctor and the Daleks. yeah um so, like, what did that always happen to him, or is this like a new destiny it's, for the master? I suppose <laughs> it's such a fascinating little wrinkle, I think. And I, because I know that he was in the process, like, he was like losing himself. I don't know if we're just going to suddenly one day out of the blue, Big Finish are going to announce some box set with John Colshaw where an amnesiac master just turns yeah. up somewhere or whatever. Like, it, it's such a fascinating ending, I think, because of that ambiguity. So in a way, I'm kind of relieved it wasn't dealt with because I think it might distract from the rest of the TLV story if we delve too much into it. I think it's sometimes it's good to leave a door open. I think that's quite an interesting door to have. But yeah, I was surprised that the, the map, actually the thing that he's trying to find, um, doesn't cover it all. But then also, if that is never followed up on, I do think it's kind of quite interesting the way that the map is kind of, you expect the map to be so important and he just happens to be using this random weapon. I and mean, then, of course, at halfway point in the story, it becomes that actually what seems like a plot convenience with this weapon is actually what the story's about. And I do think that's a really clever take on doing that sort of story. And so in that sense, you could almost say that the map is kind of just a distraction to make you think that's what the story's about before it shifts gears. But um, it would be interesting to see it followed up on still, I think, because there's a lot of unanswered questions from that in particular. I'd, I'd, yeah, definitely like to see something followed up from that as well. Yeah, and then in the second um, of those two short trips, you've got the Anthony Ainley Master, 
and listen to it again this time. I wondered if that female Katura that visits that planet is, um, and I've forgotten the name, but the one from the second book from All Flesh is Grass, who sort of gives up on the Katura's mission because because she, um, she does seem like slightly slightly affected by the the events of that when the the, the medulla is it the um, the race that willingly give themselves up to have their life lifespans foreshortened so that the master can't use those gems as weapons in the future um i wonder if that was supposed to be the same character it's not yeah it was it's interesting because when i was reading all flesh's grass i was sort of starting to think that but then of course she dies at the end of all flesh's grass and i was kind of like oh okay so is it not that because i did one there was a point reading all flesh's grass was like oh are they going to do it so there's only one katuru left at the end of this dark times arc and that kind of explains why species still do have the limited lifespans and who that is in lesser evils which i'm pretty sure is implied to not be taking place in the dark times which kind of contradicts if they're all dead from all flesh's grass unless it's before the 10th doctor changed the timeline so yeah it's a lot of questions (laughs) and confusions again but um yeah i just assumed that was in the dark times i think Right, that he'd been sort of because he's been sort of exiled, hasn't he, or something like that. The master in that story, um, but yeah, whether the time lords would exile him in the dark times, that does seem a bit weird, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's always very murky with the master, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's it with both those stories. It's like you've no idea really what point in his life he is, other than the face he happens to be wearing, and it's they're not giving you story hints to say this is happening, you know, just after this other story or whatever, which is. I, you know, in keeping with how the master is usually portrayed in the EU. But yeah, I, I do almost think if All Flesh's Grass had have ended with her being the only Katuru left alive, that kind of would have resolved a lot of my sort of confusions and problems more generally, just yeah. because there is that issue, as you say, where it's like the whole idea of the Katuru is, oh, so they're the species that goes around and they're the reason why species aren't immortal and only have a set lifespan. But then if they're all gone, is that just then happening naturally afterwards? which is kind of then what's the point in the Doctor having destroyed them. It's also kind of, I think, sometimes seems to be a mixed message of whether they're kind of malicious or not as well. Like, Yeah, there seems seems to be some personal variation, doesn't there, among the species, Mm. whereas originally they're presented as this kind of homogenous unit all following the same rules. As we see more stories, it turns out some of them are a bit more sadistic with it than others, which was Mm. an interesting thing to discover that they're not quite all the same as we and the doctor as well kind of assume yeah they don't find much they they're working to this pattern aren't they that they they think is, is sort of laid out for them but we don't really find out the origins of that and whether it's a real thing or whether it's a superstition or something that they follow they are sort of swathed in mystery as well aren't they the um the Keturah and their their origins yeah, yeah, I think I think the issue that ultimately kind of comes from the fact that they do all just die out and then the world kind of there's there's the slight changes which are referenced a lot in the big finish stuff that people that the eighth doctor's noticing in the future, but really fundamentally nothing major changes. And so you kind of think, well, it's as you were kind of saying before about the tenth doctor not really seeming to have any consequences for having done this. But that's not even just in the case of him not getting sort of narratively punished or whatever, it's even just the fact that it's not really had an effect. And so you kind of wonder why he's done it, what the point of him doing it is. I don't know. But, mm. Yeah, it seems like such a great idea. 
Um, and, and, and as with, you know, another two incarnations of the Doctor trying to stop him, that, that just wasn't, yeah, wasn't quite exploited maybe to its full potential. Yeah. And I think something maybe we talked about um, uh, on another occasion, Bryn, was in Defender of the Daleks, the Doctor's surprised that the Daleks don't know about the Time War. And I think reading that, you could read it as that the Time War had been averted by the Doctor's um, actions in the Dark Times, but then that obviously isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to stay. And that was a thing that made me think it would be undone in some way. So yeah, I, maybe... I more, assume that, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was also assuming that that would be like a whole thread and that would be a bit... Especially because I think Defender of the Daleks was... I think the first Defender of the Daleks might have been the very first thing to be released. And so I kind of assumed that a whole part of the story would be about this, you know, the time war being undone. Whereas instead, now it kind of seems to imply that the Tenth Doctor has just somehow ended up in a time before the time war, which is interesting, but then how exactly that's happened. I don't know. It's a weird one. I don't know if that's explored more in the Titan comics that kind of surround this, because obviously the Tenth Doctor has an ongoing arc in that with the 13th Doctor and whether that's related to that. It's, it's also another thing where it kind of it's sort of stepping in the same territory as the big finished Dalek universe stuff that's going on at the moment which is also the Tenth Doctor ends up in a time before the time war and there's lots of Daleks again and yeah but. yeah there's the novel Prisoner of the Daleks as well isn't there which the same thing happens to him so it's like he's made quite a habit of it really <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we're talking about the Daleks I, I really like the sort of the circular nature of their storyline that the Emperor Dalek finds the message from the drone um, warning them about the Doctor and something that's happened and then that prompts him to go to the uh, what's it called the, the library of Islos or the archive of Islos or whatever mm-hmm. and that kickstarts the whole thing and it's ultimately ending with the mission that goes back to the Dark Times there's only that one drone survivor who, who goes on to um, you know, genetics of the Daleks and presumably the um, uh, fra- time fracture I think as well. It's the same same Dalek, I think, isn't it? Um, so their whole kind of just the circular nature of their storyline, I thought, was really good. It does make Mister Emperor seem a bit silly, though, in that he's having to <laughs> tell him the Doctor, beware the Doctor. So the first thing he says is, "Right, top of my shopping list, get myself a Doctor." <laughs> no. That's what you were just told to not do. Come on. Yeah. But I know he's got to preserve the. You know, he's got to preserve the timelines and all that jazz. <laughs> yeah. One of the, the booklets, I think it might be the one that came with the Dalek Emperor Eagle Moss figure. It, it talks about this sort of this new Dalek Empire or I can't remember quite what they call it, something like the that. The Dalek Restoration Empire. Yes, that's it. And I read that as, as arising after the events of Remembrance of the Daleks. I don't know if that, um, if, if you kind of got the same vibe from that. Oh. Yeah, no, that's, I think, definitely what they're trying to suggest because yeah. they're talking about uniting the Dalek forces after a civil war and mm. kind of giving them all these fancy new classifications. And look, the Emperor's gold now, so that's yeah. how you know he's really important. <laughs> yeah, and na- narratively, in terms of kind of Dalek history, which obviously can be a bit contradictory, but it does sort of make sense, actually, for the, if the fact that we've got this kind of 60s-style Dalek empire, that's, and but it's obviously set in a time that's sort of when the eighth doctor's around you know just before the time war but it makes sense that that's kind of how that's come around and in, in another way it kind of also makes sense you, you know given in remembrance of the daleks the daleks are kind of quite utterly defeated in a way it kind of makes sense that they would have to have some kind of resurgence in order to lead up to 
you know, the time war happening in, you know, relatively one doctor on from that. Um, something that I found quite interesting was that if you look at it, this might actually be the first bronze Dalek in Dalek history we see get created in Time Lord Victorious. Because obviously they all start off as this grey kind of Time Lord Victorious standard model drone. And then obviously genetics of the Daleks, we get the Dalek who kind of has to regrade himself and repair himself. And then suddenly on the cover, we're using a new series Dalek who looks bronze. And then when we go to see him in person at the escape room, a Dalek awakens, we're using our new series kind of bronze model. So could you argue that chronologically he's he's a pioneer in Dalek fashion? <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, actually, yeah. I Yeah, I do remember having that thought about, like, because obviously there's the, the clip that was sort of released on the YouTube channel as kind of a trailer thing of the Dalek kind of floating in space. I think, oh, that's interesting, that's a new series Dalek, despite the fact that most of the other TLB stuff we've seen has not had that. So actually, that's a really good point, actually, about how when he's obviously reconstructing himself in... Uh, genetics of the Daleks, so that would link to that, yeah. I had not spotted that at all. Yeah, because, yeah, in Defender of the Daleks, the and, and on the covers of the Big Finish stories, there are no new series Daleks, bronze Daleks, are there? No, but as soon as you get to the escape... Obviously, they, for genetics of the Daleks, they had to put a bronze one on the cover because they're tying it in with an escape room where they've mm. already used a new series Dalek because obviously that's the only one they're going to use as a prop for a modern-day escape room. So is that the implication that he's turned himself into a kind of new model? Yeah, just with whatever materials he's had access to in that story, that that would make sense. Yeah, um, and I did. I also really liked how Genetics of the Daleks used the thing um, of the Daleks kind of controlling humans as puppets, like we've seen in the two recent New Year specials. Um, like I really liked because it, it made it, the story feel very sort of up to date and modern, and it kind of. It makes sense, you know, that that's an ability that they, the Dalek would use in that context when it's being quite sort of stealthy and, and sneaky and on its own. And so I really liked that element being incorporated there. Yeah, it's a good a good creepy story, that one, isn't it? So how well does that tie into Time Fracture, John? Is that sort of how you, if you listen to the audio first, is it sort of how you picture it when you arrive there? So Time Fracture, I don't want to give too many spoilers for because I want as many people to go see it as they can. And there were quite a few bits where I went, oh my God, I wasn't expecting that. And I wouldn't want anything to kind of counteract that. Um, I will say that the plot isn't especially Dalek-focused. There is a Dalek element, as you would expect in any live Doctor Who experience worth its salt. Um, and they do they do contribute to the plot, but they're not a major focus of the plot. The plot's a lot more wide-spanning, all sorts of different times and places and all sorts of different monsters. So they're only really a, tie, you know, a small portion of quite a big tapestry of different Doctor Who times and places. Yeah, it's interesting. Every, everything I hear about Time Fracture makes it sound like there is so much going on in that. And, you know, I, I don't know how long it is, but if you're only there for it, it must be quite an overwhelming experience in some ways. Um, yes, so it does. It is at times quite loud. And I will say there are bits where you're kind of like, oh, my God, what's happening? So I went, <laughs> I went with somebody else and um, we were watching one particular scene. And one of the cast members literally like tapped him on his back and whisked him off to another location. And then I turned around 
and he'd and he'd gone on a thrilling adventure through time and space, and I had to sort of <laughs> nip round the corner after him to find out where they'd gone. Um, all sorts going on all around you. So many people there who's just working their socks off to give you a unique magical experience. Highly recommended. Yeah. It sounds like a really professional, impressive production. And it's, you know, it's obviously with, um, in the last year, you know, the struggles that live theatre has had as a medium, whether interactive or not, um, it's really good to hear, you know, all those actors getting work because there's obviously a massive cast of people involved in it. And that's really nice. Um, Yeah, obviously they couldn't have picked a worse time (laughs) initially. But I think they've really... Like they've they've really thought put so much thought and love into it and yeah go 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 see it if you can and then see it again to see the bits <laughs> you didn't see the first time. <laughs> Excellent. Hopefully it'll maybe sort of uh, go on tour a little bit and not uh, not stay in London the whole time. I imagine not because no. it is so <laughs> tied into that building using every last space inside that building that they can possibly squirrel something Doctor Who related into. Um, but as I say, it's on for, it's on till, it's on like it's so many times, it's like six days a week, three shows most days. Wednesday, Saturdays, they do six shows wow. all till April. So oh, okay, the opportunities to go see it are are obviously it's in london which is not easy for a lot of people but there's so many shows i think that at least that's not going to be a hindrance at least it's not people fighting for dates so much yeah i didn't realize it was on for that long i'm actually you know i was going from a perspective of probably not going to do that now thinking well actually if it's on for that long and i think because i was still slightly concerned about um coronavirus stuff but actually yeah i think Oh, I'm tempted now. You might you might have talked me around to that. Um, I I really hope so. It I, honestly, I think you're going to love it. Yeah, no, I'm exactly the same. I was thinking I you're probably not going to be in London um, with coronavirus and stuff. But yeah, I'm going to have my second jab next month. Bound to be down there before April. Um, yeah, I've got to got to try and make that as well. That's uh, yeah, that's really good news. I think from all the effort and time and money that's clearly been poured into it, you know, they're not going to pull out until they've. Yeah, well, had their proper shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is that? Have you um, either of you done any of the escape rooms? Is that because there's the Dalek Awakens is part of um, Time Lord Victorious as well? Is it? Have you done that? Do you know how it compares? Um, so I don't know about Brynn, I've, 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 not, not, I've not done it. No, I've, I've I've been to see the Dalek Awakens escape room. Um, so that ties into the genetics of the Dalek audio specifically. Um, kind of sees what happens after that Dalek's left to squirrel himself away a little bit longer. Um, I, it's a good escape room, but my problem was that I didn't think it was quite as successful as their previous escape room. Um, I think it's called Worlds Apart with the Cybermen in, mm. which isn't related to TLV in any way. But that previous one does a better job at creating a real setting that you're exploring, whereas the Dalek one feels a little bit more crystal mazy in that you can't really believe it's a real place. Like, it is just a place with puzzles a bit more, whereas the Cybermen one, for example, you start off exploring an office, looking for clues and things open up. 
The Dalek one is a bit more, here's a puzzle on this wall. Here's a puzzle on this wall, which was a little bit more disappointing. But then you have also got a, you know, a Dalek in the corner who's going to wake up and scream at you every now and again, which does, does provide a massive boost. So I can still you know, really recommend it. If you only had to see one, I'd recommend the Cybermen one personally. If put puzzles on the wall, I was going to say it sounds a bit like the Exxon City, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, it's got the dangerous flooring as well. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Stop, don't move. Um... It's a different type of dangerous flooring, but there is still a flooring element of danger. Lovely, yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose, again, what you're saying about it, it feeling a bit more like they've come up with puzzles and sort of put them there on show rather than feeling like a real place. I do wonder if, again... And just speculating whether that does speak to a, a quicker turnaround because of the nature of Time Lord Victorious and trying to, you know, organise all these things and get them all out in the same space. Because I imagine to make escape rooms obviously takes a lot of a lot of work. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think part of it's also just due to the setting they've chosen. So obviously. The first escape room with the Cybermen, they start off with the office, as I say, and there's secrets inside that office, whereas this one is immediately like, you're on a spaceship, there are systems that need fixing, get to it. There's not so much kind of living space, there's not so much kind of find the, like, you're kind of given all the plot information at the beginning mm -hmm. as opposed to discovering what's actually happening. It's a bit more, this is happening, you need to stop it. Whereas the Cyberman one is a bit more investigative-y. And I'm sure some people probably prefer this other way, probably prefer a bit more of a get to the puzzles. So it's probably just a matter of personal taste. Mm. Yeah, I think I was getting confused before when I, I was saying that genetics of the Daleks led into Time Fracture, but it, yeah, it's the um, Dalek Awakens, isn't it? So, Bryn, you were saying about the... it's uh, You're not usually reading much of the Doctor Who comics, but, so this brought you into that. Has that um, led you to read any, any further... Doctor Who comic stuff, or I, I, I can be honest and say, I, although I did enjoy parts of these ones, I have not read much more since. Although I did actually get, I think as a, a late Christmas present, I got one of the Ninth Doctor Titan comics runs, which I really enjoyed. Um, so obviously that wasn't you know specifically me going out of my way to buy mm -hmm. more comics, but I was more than happy to read it. You know, it was a case of seeing it and going, oh, that'd be nice to read some more um, Titan comics. And those ones were very good. I think it was the first run of Ninth Doctor ones they did. I think. Weapons of Past Destruction was the name of the collection. Um, but I, I did enjoy reading the comics for this. They're not my favourite stories, but um, I was Defender of the Daleks, I think especially the first issue, the artwork in that is really impressive, I think. Like the sort of image of um, the Scaro landscape, you know, I'd love to have that as like a massive poster or something. And then, you know, just those first few pages where the kind of planet hopping and Daleks turning up the whole time, um, you know, seeing so many different Daleks and so and these big spread pages, I think they did a, a really good job of doing a narrative which supports getting a lot of very impressive visuals in there, which obviously is kind of what comics are for. And um, I did um, really enjoy parts of um, Monstrous Beauty as well um, and the whole sort of... Um, Space Lords thing and, yeah. and Rassilon and how he did that and it was a fun fun little read and they're nice they're nice um, because of the first Monstrous Beauty one being released kind of as a comic that came with the DWM rather than just printed inside it and then obviously the Defender of the Daleks ones being nice little comics like they they just look really nice covers and I really like having them there so yeah I was it was a positive experience with um, 
Doctor Who comics, but um, it's not something I'm necessarily going to be out of the way to get getting loads more. But yeah. Yeah, I was a little sad that the second and third bits of Monstrous Beauty didn't also come in nice, beautiful pullouts, <laughs> but that's, you know, me always wanting more than I could necessarily get. <laughs> yeah, the things that I loved about Monstrous Beauty were the, the new sort of female incarnation of Rassilon. Um, I thought it was excellent. That was kind of a, a big surprise reading that. That was awesome. Um, and then the, the the sort of vampiric ships that the vampires fly in, um, it was a link back to one of the Eighth Doctor comic strips uh, so from the 90s, so it was really good to sort of tie that into Time Lord Victorious and, and a bit of sort of ongoing um, continuity as well. Um, yeah, I, uh, I really like that part of it. And I thought the Ninth Doctor's character was really nailed in that. Even like saying um, Summit, um, instead, of, instead of something, it just it really got his his speech down really well. I agree about the Nine Doctor's characterization, and I did like, although it was quite short lived, the sort of um, sort of one story companion that he has in the third part as kind of trying to help him get out of the ship and the relationship there. Although I do think that was kind of it, kind of felt like Rose's story in that comic art was maybe a little sacrifice for that. Like I felt like she was a bit underused and but that the kind of the cliffhanger to part one and part two are both kind of like roses a vampire moments yeah. <laughs> it kind of feels a bit you know but um other than that i did enjoy that narrative and again really nice art with all those sort of big space battles and i think what was interesting about it was it was so very different of an art style to uh, the Titan comic stuff. And even just like in the terms of the color scheme, like because so much of the Titan comic stuff is on Scaro, so it's, it's very sort of bright and daylight, you know, that mm. kind of desert vibe. Whereas there's a in the um, DWM stuff, there's a lot of like purples and blues and it just kind of, it gives a hot, completely different vibe to it and kind of makes them feel very distinct. Yeah, I think the two different art styles are both very successful at doing the different things they're trying to do. So like the Defender of the Daleks going for that more kind of photorealistic, but that more kind of, maybe I will say photorealistic if I can't come up with anything better to say, but that kind of more photorealistic as it would look kind of style. Whereas Monstrous Beauty was going for that more heavily shaded stylistic. And I think they both did a really good job of leaning into whichever of the styles they had chosen and presenting it in the best way possible. The art art for both was phenomenal. Yeah, I love it. As you say, those cliffhangers where you've got the, the sort of full page of the the three sort of vampire sisters like attacking Rose, and then the second cliffhanger of Rose um, is totally unexpected when when the Doctor comes into the room, and and Rose basically killed or attacked these three sisters, and she's now a really powerful vampire who who attacks the Doctor. Re- yeah, really, really great. Yeah, just a shame we didn't get more of Vampire Rose. Really, I mean. Mm. I, I, I was hoping she'd get a little bit of a more role, especially because she's on the main Time Lord Victorious image in that white dress. Like, they kind of made a big thing, I think, there, putting her so prominently in the artwork. And then it turns out, not quite as big a thing <laughs> yeah. as we may have slightly wanted you to think. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that is basically it. She's in Monstrous Beauty, and there is that one sort of chapter in The Night of the Fallen and the Dead, one of the sort of interlude bits, where obviously it's the Night of Doctors talking to her, but beyond that, um, we don't really get anything. I was a bit disappointed about that. And like you say, the fact that we get this big moment of her being a vampire, but then the resolution to that is kind of the Doctor just putting her to sleep for 
the rest yeah. of <laughs> the time was victorious. Um, but yeah, it's quite. It's like Nissa in. Um is it Kinder? Kinder, Kinder yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Delta Wave Augmenter thing that she's... Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then also on the periphery, so we've got like the fourth Doctor and the 13th Doctor, um, with the 13th Doctor sort of little cameo in, in Defender of the Daleks, and the fourth Doctor's got his own story, which is, again, sort of tangential, but it's like a bridge, isn't it, to the, uh, to the escape room. Um, but he just sort of dismisses when um, the Dalek starts talking to him about Time Lord Victorious. He just goes, no, nah, it doesn't sound like me, that. <laughs> that was one of my favourite moments in that story. And it just it's, it's perfect because it's kind of like you feel like, obviously, when 8 and 9 are reacting to this stuff, they're coming to it from a perspective of being kind of modern takes on the character to a greater or lesser extent. And so they kind of, it doesn't seem very, but for the fourth Doctor, it's completely... You know, it's almost, it, it made me think about how that sort of moment at the end of um, the key to time, where he's put the key to time together and he kind of almost <laughs> does that sort of fake out thing where he's like, you know, I have all power over it. And he's kind of like, oh, but it's fine because I'm me. Yeah. And so it's kind of the same thing. It's, you know, with the character of the fourth Doctor, there's no way he could ever see himself being that because he's just like ultimate power. Yeah. You know. <laughs> It's interesting because in the I think in the original or one of the early drafts of the five doctors, um, I think when they still had hopes of getting Tom Baker, that he was going to be the one that Barusa had the influence over. That um, that the was I think I can't remember, Terence Dick sort of said, "Oh, he's the one that you could potentially see maybe turning a bit bad," and the other ones having to fight him, which obviously didn't pan out that way in the end because they couldn't get Tom Baker. But yeah, it would have been interesting to see that side of his character. Because um, I suppose the only thing you get with him that's, that approaches that is Invasion of Time when he um, sort of betrays Gall- apparently betrays Gallifrey to help the, the Vardens invade. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's also moments of, I think as Tom Baker, as much as sometimes it's just remembered, I think especially by sort of non-fans or people who aren't as interested as like the funny one, but that he does do pretty serious intent. Like if you sit through season 13, it's actually not that hard to see him becoming an evil doctor at all. Like he can be so intense and like how violent he is in the seeds of doom as well. And not kind of like <laughs> the sort of pantomime balletic violence of the third doctor. It's kind of like, you know, you can picture him in a, in a pub brawl or something yeah. almost. Um, <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I think the big finished version is a lot cuddlier, isn't he, though? That's, um, mm. yeah. yeah, it seems to be taking sort of more from the Graham Williams era of it than the sort of either the JNT on the final end or the start with Hinchcliffe, at least in terms of his characterization, which I suppose makes sense given that they're mostly working with... Um, Obviously, Leela and Romana, mm. which means it kind of is in that Graham Williams era, the sort of stories they're telling, usually. Yeah. And, and like you say, it's more in the public consciousness that he's that cuddlier, avuncular sort of doctor. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was nice, I always thought, when there were other doctors in it. So obviously, we kind of knew about the fourth doctor in advance because he has a whole story. But like when the 13th Doctor shows up in Defender of the Daleks or when there's that little interlude with the first Doctor again in Night of the Fallen the Dead, um, like both those moments, I'm like, oh, it's nice to have another Doctor in it. And even, I suppose this is for spoilers for Minds of Magnox, which I suppose has been out for half a year now, but obviously there is the 11th Doctor at the end of that. And what I think is a really great scene and moment. And it's it's kind of, 
in retrospect, it almost seems obvious that if you're going to get Jacob Dudman to do the audiobook, yeah. but you get a bit of Eleventh <laughs> Doctor in there. It's really, you know, playing to his strengths. And so um, I loved that and those little bits of... So in, in effect, there's kind of six Doctors who have some part in it by the end. And I suppose if you include Time Fracture, probably a lot more as well. But, uh, oh, all the blooming shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember and seeing that. Besides. <laughs> I remember seeing when they announced like all that stuff, including you know having Joe Martin to do a bit for that. And again, I was like, wow, that is they've really pulled out all the stops. Oh, um, I love the fact that she's treated with the same weight as any other doctor in mm. that. She's not treated as like an afterthought or an extra. It's very much yeah. the same weight given to her bits as to any other doctor, which I'm a big big fan of. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say, <laughs> I imagine for over a lot of fans, it might even be that they feel more weight to those bits just because we've had so little of her so far and I think you know I don't know anyone who isn't crying out for more of her character and stuff so yeah no absolutely uh, yeah I think if she isn't in the next series there'll be uh, <laughs> there'll be quite some disappointed fans there yeah I mean there's the I suppose it's the short stories which are sort of liberally dropped in at various points through various slightly obscure ways of actually getting a hold of them yeah. like the one where you had to receive the email with the passcode to view it oh, on the website yeah. and all of these kind of like little tidbits that they dropped in over the way so there's the what the TARDIS thought of Time Lord Victorious there's um, the tie-in to the Wintertime Paradox book um, Canaries that one was a really good story that mm. made me actually interested in a book that I had no interest in buying before <laughs> so that one's probably going to end up on my birthday list to be honest um, well it's only so again, the audio book I think isn't it it's I think it's not in the, the physical book it's only in the audio book Oh. Yeah, but it was released for free online as prose, wasn't it? And yeah. then it's and then obviously all the other short stories in that book. It's all the same author, isn't it? That book it's, of short stories. So I suppose it's if you liked Canaries, yeah. then the assumption is you'll enjoy the rest of it and that yeah, style. Yeah, I, I felt like I'd been I felt like I'd been had because like <laughs> obviously that's kind of what they're trying to go for with a lot of this stuff is we put out this bit and try and lure you into into spending your money on the other bits and I couldn't help thinking oh gosh they've actually got me there yeah. darn it yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of the other short stories you mentioned I think was the one that was with the newsletter where I think you needed a code or something and that was the like the first like it's supposed to be the, fir the first time the Couturier went to a planet and dealt that justice oh, is uh, it the yeah. dawn of the Couturier I think is that yes yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I I did find that interesting uh, and it's kind of it takes a slightly more wry tone because I think it's it's meant to be being presented by the kind of it's kind of got a sort of slightly wry AI narrator of some description hasn't it I think I remember um, it's like an archive or something that's telling this story and it's kind of it's being written in a way that tells the story, but it's got a slight humorous tone to it. And I found it kind of, I think because also included in one of the newsletters was the prologue of The Night Before and the Dead, which kind of narratively is telling the same thing. It's the Katuru go to a planet and you see them kind of in action yeah, doing yeah. their modus operandi. And obviously it's very different takes on it where in The Night Before and the Dead, I think that prologue is absolutely beautiful. Like it's, it's really good prose and really kind of, engaging and poetic with it so then i think in retrospect the short story kind of feels a lot less kind of important and relevant and then when they were literally released in the same kind of newsletter like a week apart it does feel like 
for a reader of that newsletter, you kind of feel like you're reading the same thing twice, but in very different moods. But I don't know how um, people who were reading that outside the context of having already looked into TLV would have felt about that. But yeah. I guess it's all, it's all them trying to put out these hooks, isn't it? Mm. Putting out these different hooks in different styles to try and pull you in towards exploring more of this different different world. And I think that's something that they're, they're quite successful at, but at the same time, I can't help feel they've done it quite cynically at some point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is a sort of, almost a certain cynicism to the whole sort of project. You know, the idea that it came out of survey feedback about what elements people liked and then just kind of presented to James Goss as a can you do a thing with all of these things you know you were talking about the idea of these stories that are kind of serving as, as hooks and I think another one we've not bought up yet but definitely falls into that category is the Doctor Who annuals stuff on Time World Victorious which is obviously it's in a very sort of different place that a different audience is going to be picking up and it's obviously there to try and tell that audience that thing's happening because normally the annuals are very sort of focused on the current era and besides that bit this one is as well and obviously that's paid, several page spreads I think has a, a yeah. brief tiny little introduction thing from uh -huh. a Virgin Doctor and then it's presented from River Song's perspective and yeah it was an interesting one trying to balance promotional purposes the sort of tone and style of the annual with also kind of trying to convey this information and also I having spoken um, to, to Paul Lang about it at one point like he had very little detail of what any of the stories in Time World Victorious were to go off so in writing it I imagine that was a, a real challenge. Um, that was an interesting one because it kind of was a hook in both directions I think hooking people who were unlikely to necessarily buy an annual to say, oh, it's tied into the title of Victorious, I'll get this annual. And then obviously working in the other direction, which is the people who just buy the annual, saying, what the hell's this title of Victorious thing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose like I think, say, the cynicism sorry. of it is like each of the different license holders trying to trying to draw yeah, new people in, isn't it? Um, and yeah, I wonder how successful that was because I mean, we were kind of, we were all kind of quite invested anyway that we were going to try and consume as much as we could but be interesting to know how many new subscribers like Titan Comics got on the back of it or, or any of the others like that mm. yeah I mean it's, it's a shame really but obviously I think generally the rule is with BBC Studios licensees that they're not allowed to release sort of any kind of figures that demonstrate how much they've sold or whatever and so we're probably very unlikely to find out in any great detail i suppose there might be you know interviews and oral anecdotal stuff about how successful it's been from mm. people involved and potentially you know if we ever get in the next sort of five years or so a similar kind of project again that would probably also be an indication if it had been quite <laughs> successful but yeah I, I, I do wonder on that um regard and um how well it's gone down with fans it's been quite hard to gauge gorge as well i think there's a certain feeling certain from some corners but it just wasn't a thing that they were interested in and so I feel like if a huge chunk of people haven't engaged with it at all then you you know their opinion is kind of whatever and I've not other outside of listening you know to this podcast and chatting to people like hey I don't know but I've heard that many discussions about it from people who have actually been engaging with it sort of thing um yeah 
Yeah, so it's partly relying on a lot of Doctor Who fans being completists as well. <laughs> I have to say, if I wasn't covering it in the way that I was for the for the Tides of Time fanzine, I probably would not have so heavily invested yeah. in all the different <laughs> yeah. aspects that I did. I, I think it's the same thing for me. I mean, obviously, I didn't go quite as far as you in that I've not got the T-shirts or the figurines, but certainly if I hadn't been setting out to review it for the blog... I would have probably listened to the audio drama still. Maybe not the fourth Doctor one, but and possibly not the short trips, but definitely the eighth Doctor stuff because I've heard like everything Big Finish has ever done with the eighth Doctor because I'm such a fan of Paul McGann. Um, and I probably might have given the books a go still, you know, depending on you know how I felt at the time. But um, but yeah, it's definitely made me think about the other elements and mm. the same thing. It, it it does have an effect when they you know it shows at least for us that the multimedia aspect of it does actually make people who are already quite invested in Doctor Who invest in other bits of it, and that is, I guess, part of the point, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't want to... Like I say, it made me do things I wouldn't necessarily have done, but at the same time, I'm really glad that I have. Like, my Dalek figurines now sit below my television, pride of place in the living room, you know, so it's not a case where I feel like I've kind of been forced to do things I didn't want to. You know, do you know what I mean? I'm trying to say, like... yeah. I'm, I'm the same. To, yeah, push me to explore the things I wouldn't necessarily have done, but I'm glad that I did. Yeah, it's it's the, it's the same. It's like the comics, you know, they weren't my favourite stories. I wouldn't have picked them otherwise, but I don't feel any resentment towards that. I'm very happy to have them because they're still nice, you know, little things to own. And, you know, also the comics as well were kind of a cheap part of it in a way. So, you know, that helps. Um, yeah. Also interesting, um, just thinking about it, so just in the last um, couple of days, I don't know if it was last night or yes, or the day before, but I saw that um, two of the Eighth Doctor Time World Victorious audios have been nominated for Scribe Awards, um, which was, um, it was the first two, it was um, He Kills Me, He Kills Me Not, and um, The Enemy of My Enemy, um, which I thought were interesting choices in the Although I liked both those stories, I wouldn't say they were my favourites. I think um, The Enemy of My Enemy in particular was one I found to be slightly more um, forgettable, probably the, mo the more forgettable oh. of the Big Finish stuff. But I have to say the opposite. I have to say The Enemy of the Enemy was my favourite of the Big Finish audio dramas. Um, he Kills Me, He Kills Me Not, I thought was something of nothing, to be honest. A bit of a wander around a Wild West planet and then Brian the U turns <laughs> up and then it's over. Um <laughs> But I really enjoy the enemy of my enemy, so I'm pleased to hear that one. But then everybody has different, you know, that's the thing, is we yeah. all have these different interpretations of these things, and I'm not going to start fighting you to the death just because you <laughs> no, know that's good. What I do. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's also it's the fact that um, the category they've been nominated, I can't remember the name of the category, but obviously it's for sort of online audio drama stuff, and the three other stories nominated in this category are also all big Finnish. Doc, like well, I think Torchwood and Doctor Who audio. So it's kind of <laughs> big finish. Do have a bit of a a market grasp. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it might be media tie-in or something is how they they phrase it. I think that's what the Scribe Awards are actually. I think it's specifically for stuff that is kind of what we would call expanded universe content, but obviously not exclusively for um, Doctor Who stuff because there are there are other expanded yeah. universes, obviously. But big finish do most of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think just uh, what you're saying about following the Eighth Doctor, I think that was one of the things that James Goss said had come out of the, the market research, which sort of sparked it in the first place, was there's a huge appetite for Eighth Doctor material. So it's kind of a savvy sort of, savvy sort of play to have him in the most of the big finishes, I guess, and then um, in the book as well, in the second book predominantly um in terms of yeah. Yeah, what i wouldn't normally get is I'm not a collector of the eagle moss stuff the only eagle moss stuff i got before this was the uh, the little tardis consoles because uh they are just absolutely beautiful um so i've got i've got like three of those um but yeah i did then relent and get because i loved the emperor from the cartoon so much and the strategist uh from his appearances across the various media um but obviously you've got to get the executioner with, I think, with the strategist and the drone. So, yeah, I ended up with like uh, with those four. Anyway. <laughs> um, They're a beautiful set of Daleks. Love them to bits. Very good design. Please, please, please keep them for more stuff. Don't throw yeah, them away yes. after this. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is it, actually. like They're genuinely distinct characters and... I must admit, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the, the Daleks animation. I know you've said that you were, um, but certainly from the audio stuff, and um, you really got a sense of a strategist and the scientist and the emperor and the commander and the executioner. And I, I enjoy that dynamic. I think it's something that more Dalek stories could use, even if it's not explicitly the exact same characters, if it's just those roles, just so that the Daleks, you know, the scenes where Daleks are talking to each other, which is something that I would say don't do too many of anyway but if you're doing them to have them as distinct as possible is definitely the way to go about that one of the things I absolutely loved in, I think it's in one of the, the booklets that came with these Egon Musk figures, it, when you learn that the Dalek Executioner is one of the special weapons Daleks, like re, rehoused into, into a new casing. Because uh, I love the special weapons Dalek. Yeah, I love the idea that, that that's why he's the way he is. <laughs> in, Those uh, booklets are full of the most surprising little tidbits of information. Yes. And in some bits, little bits that kind of paper over narrative gaps as well. Because I think it's the booklet for one of the models which mentions that the entity from the Daleks animation is apparently the servant of the Hond from the Destroyer of the Daleks comic. Oh, and that's a piece of information which I couldn't find anywhere else in any no. canon material, but is mentioned as a sort of factoid in one of the tie-in Daleks yeah. uh, figurine magazines. It just sort of makes you wonder which way around that happened, whether it was a case that that was in someone's sort of planning notes when they're figuring stuff out and doesn't quite come across in the stories, or whether it's a case that somebody's, you know, who's writing those booklets has seen those two stories and gone, you know, I can connect these in a way. I, that's, I'm curious about that. Um, but it definitely is a useful connection. Yeah. The last booklet is also really great because it's dedicated entirely to interviews with all the different creative people involved in all the different bits, so the writers of all the audios, the writers of the comics. Um, and I think, that, and, and I, obviously, the way that things have been delayed due to the coronavirus and stuff, it didn't end up being the last release, but I think on the original schedule it, prob it would have been, and it was a really nice way to kind of celebrate the whole event, to end with some interviews with everybody mm. who's been involved in making it. Um, again, full of really interesting tidbits, like that originally the Master Short Trips, they said, were being planned with Alex McQueen 
then at some point plans for that changed and they got involved with with obviously writing them for the third and not the third I could say the third master that's not <laughs> Roger Delgado and, um, and and Anthony Ainley so that 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 last booklet really really recommend just a nice kind of chat to all the people who did things yeah thinking again about the the eighth doctor audience I also think one thing that I was very happy to see and you know it's especially nice now that two of those eighth doctor trilogy have been nominated the fact that it is um all the the female writers I can't remember who wrote the first one the second is Tracy Ann Baines and the third is Lizzie Hopley especially because historically I think of almost all the classic doctors eighth doctor has had very few women writers on audio there was Lloyd Rose and Caroline Simcox in the main range and then from Lloyd Rose writing Kedroya in I think 2005-ish there's been not another one until I think uh, The Further Adventures of Lucy Miller which came out in 2019 which is ridiculous yeah so it's, it's kind of in the last two years there have been five but before that there were two in like almost 20 years which um, so in, I was very happy to see that trilogy being and also the fact that they're just sort of obviously Lizzie Hopley's done stuff before for Big Finish but like they're, they're less common writers or new writers and it's always nice seeing new writers at Big Finish and the same actually um, with, the, with one of the short trips being um, Sophie Isles. is it Ilay or I- Isles I don't Sophie actually Isles know, yeah, so, yeah she did Master's Sophie Isles yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that was nice to see as well I mean, you've summed that up perfectly. I don't know what more I can say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just something that really stuck out to me because, you know, I remember before the further adventures of Lucy Miller and the first Stranded Set and things like that came along for years, listening to the Oak Doctor stuff and thinking, there's really not a lot of women writing these, are they? So it's been good in the last couple of years to have a slight uptick on that, as that has been sort of as a general trend to a big finish, I think. Yeah, it's good to see. They, they seem to be making real progress with that, don't they? I guess I've got a question I could ask you guys if you don't mind. Yeah, which absolutely. is if you if you, you know, had the chance to tell the BBC what you want from Time Lord Victorious 2, or not necessarily a sequel, <laughs> but you know, the next big, you know, multi-channel, multimedia breakaway smash, what would you like to see in it? What would you like to see them do differently? Yeah, I think for me, just off the top of my head, I would, because there's such a gap between series these days, I do think it would be interesting to approach doing something where it was kind of centred around whoever the incumbent doctor was. I think that could, it would be capturing a different audience, uh, you know, a, a more mainstream audience maybe than something like Time Lord Victorious does. And obviously there are sort of difficulties there in the, the way the licensing's done for Big Finish, for example, they tend to only get they only get the license once um, a Doctor's left. But either you could just do it that this is a, a not based more around the non-cast based mediums, or you could give some kind of special dispensation to Big Finish in the same way that Titan Comics are never normally allowed to feature the Daleks, but for Time Lord Victorious, that they had the sort of special dispensation to have Daleks in Defender of the Daleks. You could have. And so I think that's what I'd like to see, whether it's the 13th Doctor or whoever comes along after, or I think, you know, because as, as, it's obviously, yes, it's still that they've got to take a break between series, and I understand why there aren't as many episodes, but, you know, if it takes 
a, a day to record a big finished story and then you can write however many books and comics you like without um having to worry about that I'm, I'm sure there are many technical and logistic difficulties in that and obviously you'd have to be coordinating with Cardiff more in terms of not doing the same kind of plot lines but um I think that is what I would take with it. So I don't really have a narrative idea or direction, but I just, I think something focused on being called the Doctor is what I would think. I absolutely agree on that. I think that's the one thing that, it's obviously lovely that the 13th Doctor makes some cameos in some bits, mm. but I think it's difficult to have a big launch not have the main current Doctor be the face of it. Mark, was there anything that you would envision in your multimedia epic I think I think yeah I'd, I'd agree with that as well um, I was thinking along those same sort of lines and in terms of, like you say the dispensation for the 50th anniversary I think Big Finish partnered with uh, sort of Audio Go didn't they so they could use the, the new series Doctors for that Destiny of the Doctors strand where they, they released a story every an audio story every month with um, with each of the Doctors so yeah there must, there must be some way around that um, I guess probably the other thing I'd say is now that Big Finish have got Christopher Eccleston, which so they they didn't when <laughs> when this came about, is um, yeah get Christopher Eccleston in a multi doctor story like he probably wouldn't do it on TV, but hopefully you could get him to do it for Big Finish. I'd, 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 I'd yeah love to see that. Yeah, I definitely think that's a good shout. I mean, because all along there's been stuff. It was, it was kind of people expecting, I think, for a while, some big announcement that of at least David Tennant. And obviously, eventually, we did get Echoes of Extinction, which I assume, not an afterthought necessarily, but a sort of a thing that's been done at some point in the process when they've realised they can get David Tennant for a bit. And I think it's as nice as it is, but the full cast stuff in it is, you know, led by Paul McGann, which kind of makes sense given the big finish history. I definitely agree that that's something I'd like to see more in the future. I mean, it's, it's difficult because the full cast stuff is probably some of the hardest and more expensive to produce. And yet, as it's what I enjoy more, I suppose, as part of yeah. things. Yeah, just have as much full cast up as possible and um, different doctors, but yeah. It's the closest to a TV story you can get, isn't it, without being yeah. on TV? And like you say, you can record a, a whole story in a day rather than over over weeks or whatever. So, um, yeah, more of that would be, would be amazing. What about you, John? Um. Well, again, featuring the incumbent Doctor mm. is a massive one. Um, and I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I guess this is probably also tied into the fact that someone's lending me the New Adventures books, which I'm starting from the beginning and I'm quite enjoying. But something with a little bit more of a serialization kind of ongoing plotline aspect, I would personally enjoy, but I understand totally the marketing reasons why that wouldn't necessarily be a very sensible thing to do in the modern marketplace. Um, and also more of a focus on the companions or mm. someone, or introduce a character to whom changes can occur over the course of the story. Because obviously mm. we're fitting this into the 10th Doctor right near the end of his life, and there's nowhere for him especially to go by the end of it. I think either putting in some companions or maybe an original character who you can change and develop over the course of the narrative would be would be a real boost. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that, especially more focus on the companions because, like I would say, I was you know slightly disappointed by how Rose was used in TLB and yeah. I suppose get character options involved as well, because mm. um, uh, I mean it would be very easy for them to make. Um, a sort of like a Dalek strategist, wasn't it? Um, figure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And even even like a um, 
you know, Tenth Doctor in the Time Lord victorious robes because we've had sort of Rassilon figures and stuff, haven't we, with the Time Lord collars and things like that. Um, I'm sure a set of that would sell really well. Oh, um, Eagle Moss's last last set did you were uh, David Tennant in his robes and um, Brian the Ood for you. Yeah. So if you yeah. want to pick that one up, but I, I guess it's the difference between the sort of the poseable action figures that you can oh, kind of oh, right. play with oh, a bit sorry. more and the. Oh. I'll yeah. hush my mouth. <laughs> no, I mean, but I do think it's an interesting one. I do wonder if it's a thing that because they'd licensed the Eagle Moss stuff, whether there's some kind of contract clause that then they couldn't do character options as well, because otherwise it kind of seems like a bit of an obvious thing. Yeah. Especially when there's do so many Daleks and stuff. And But um, good character options obviously produces a lot less these days. Anyway, mm. actually, they, they do all the car- classic stuff now, don't they, as well? Um, yeah. But um, I suppose they still produce less than they did in. 2006 yeah. or whenever I used to go to Asda and see him on all the shelves but um, but yeah yeah I'm probably just saying Sorry, I'm more um, invested in character options than um, I mean Eagle Moss um, uh. Yeah, sorry, that was me showing off my total lack of action figure knowledge <laughs> yeah. beyond the ones that they're pushing me to buy <laughs> Yeah Well that's all we've got time for thank you very much for joining me if you'd just like to let our listeners know where else we can find you online so um, I'm usually tweeting on Twitter, which um, I'm sure Mark will provide a link for. It's at B Mitchell Twitter, but Twitter's spelled funny, so the link will be much easier. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm finishing up at the moment my Time Lord Victorious blogging project, which I did take a, a bit of a break from while still reading the stories, and now I'm finally going through all my notes and finishing off. And those those posts are mostly written, but so that I didn't post them and ended up having another break before I post I'm basically getting it all done and then I'll be posting posts that go through my reviews of the final few stories I hadn't covered yet and also um, a final wrap up post and they'll be out in the next couple of weeks I think um, and also some of those um, posts will feature links to my reviews for We Are Cult that I've done because I've already reviewed some Time Lord Victorious that hasn't gone up on the blog yet because I regularly review um, Big Finish um, for We Are Cult and it's definitely worth checking out the reviews that We Are Cult do whether it's mine or anyone else's as, um, it's always a good read and I also had the pleasure of um, reviewing the Witchfinders for them and I think my next um, review for them that you probably see coming up sometime soon or possibly before this podcast um, has been released it'll be um, for the robots um, volume 4 with uh, Nicola Walker and Claire Rushbrook and the Vok robots and then they've got um, Gregory DePolnay back for um, playing D84 so um, yeah. I'm excited to, to listen to those and review them so yeah feel free to check that out fantastic and John? Um, so yeah, you can also find me on Twitter at um, at Abracadasma. And no, I will never explain where that name has come from. Um, I've been reviewing all the Time Lord Victorious components for the um, Oxford Doctor Who Society's magazine, The Tide of Time. So you can look for that and find issues of that for free online. Um, I also have my own Doctor Who blog, which I run with a whole team of reviewers, where we're going through all the big big finish main range audios. So starting from number one all the way through every fortnight. So at the moment we're, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head the number, but we're at three's a crowd for anyone who knows whatever number of the main range that is. Um, yeah, I've been plugging away at them for a few years and I'm probably going to be plugging away at them till I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> at least they've finished it now. At least there's a definitive That's end. true. That's true. There is a definitive end, but then, you know, who knows? Who knows after that what we'll do? Mm. 
so yeah that's big, big who listen that's great I'll put links in the show notes to, to all those um, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at trap1 underscore and I'm on Twitter as at quark McMalice. And you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.